Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Patrick Slaney. Today I'm talking to John Cheng about his new book, Astounding Wonder, Imagining Science and Science Fiction in Interwar America. In the book, Cheng uncovers the material and social circumstances that created the social phenomenon of American science fiction. To a population already enamored with the products of scientific research, think here of like the aviation craze, of the enthusiasm for automobiles and for movies, for example, science fiction magazines offered opportunities for exploring science's transformative potential, for reimagining the boundaries of the social and the natural, and importantly, for building communities. Cheng shows how science fiction readers consumed produced, argued over, and tried to integrate science fiction into their lives. Some were inspired to devote their lives to science, some inspired to write the Science Fiction Internationale. Historiographically sensitive, Cheng argues for detaching popular culture, and fan culture in particular, from a strong identification with consumption, and for the importance of reading texts in their original material context, while at the same time providing a sophisticated reading of the content of science fiction pulps. Cheng shows how stories about robots, aliens, and time travel all reveal Americans' concerns as science became integrated into American society, demonstrating the need for the history of science to be integrated with American history. Hi, John. Hello. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. Thank you. We're here to talk today about your new book, Astounding Wonder, Imagining Science and Science Fiction in Interwar America. Uh, but before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I um, am Taiwanese-American immigrant, came over to the United States when I was very young. I uh, grew up all over the country, um, but mostly in Portland, Oregon, before I went to college and graduate school. Um, and I've been interested in science uh, and science fiction since I was a child, um, and only later um, when I went to graduate, decided to go to graduate school, realized that I was interested in history as well. So um, the book reflects sort of long-term interests that I've had. I think since I was since I was very young, um, I've been uh, an academic a historian of uh, American uh, American historian, um, interested in social and cultural history, history of science, and uh, uh, in in a number of different areas. So, so was your was your undergraduate actually in a science or not? Um, I started off as a chemistry major. Uh, I started off as a chemistry major. Realized that uh, being a chemistry m- major meant not just learning chemistry, but working in a laboratory, and uh, that that probably wasn't something I wanted to do. Spend a lot of time doing. So I uh, wound up majoring in um, uh, actually a special major, uh, history and science, which was a combination of history, science, and history of science, the three uh, three different areas. Um, and uh, yes, uh, so I started off in chemistry. Um, I actually wound up writing my senior thesis on the history of artificial intelligence um, because, among other things, I worked um, at the time in college, I had a summer job working to, uh, as a research um, intern at Tektronics in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, and actually where my parents worked, um, and uh, actually did a lot of really interesting work in digital signal processing, which uh, I didn't wind up using in um, uh, necessarily in the book or in my uh, graduate career or professionally, but I've sort of maintained interests in um, computing and digital um, affairs since then. Um, I, I sort of a, I 
conversation starter is I actually have a patent as a result of those. Uh, really? Of yes, it's just you know, um, it's 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 uh, got a very fancy formal name, but it basically had to do with a way of using digital signal processing um, to test optical fibers. Okay. Um, I, as I said, it's something I did back in. Uh, summers in college, and I haven't really um, gone that gone that roads for a very long time. So, okay. So, where did you go to graduate school? I went to graduate school at Berkeley. Okay. Um, I uh, went there originally thinking I was going to work in history of science, um, and uh, became much more interested in American history generally. Um, and so, at one point, and wanted working with two. Um, really sort of amazing scholars, John Heilbronn and uh, Lawrence Levine. Um, and I actually asked them when I was working on my dissertation if I could, because they were both on my committee, if I figured I'd have them both be primary advisors, and they told me I had to choose. Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> so um, ultimately, I I think I went with Larry because I realized that there were uh, interests outside of history of science in American history that I was in some ways more interested in pursuing. Um, but I've always actually maintained and um, continue to read uh, interest in and continue to read a lot of the literature in history of science. So I would still would like to consider myself both. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I mean, I think that there's like this growing recognition that we need to have <clears throat> literatures of national science that are really embedded in national cultures. If you're doing a sort of, a national, if you're if you're studying science anyway, the history of science anyway, right? Uh huh. Um, so you said you were like interested in sort of science and science fiction early on, but how did you get into this particular book and this particular project? Well, uh, it's it's kind of a funny story. I at the time, uh, I, as I just mentioned, I was trying to choose between the two, and I was taking I had took a research seminar. Uh, with Larry Levine, and uh, but I um, had a fellowship from the National Science Foundation at the time, and I realized, and I sort of was trying to uh, still sort of combine work in both fields. And so, um, picking a research topic, I realized if I worked on science fiction, that was both science and popular culture, the two things that I was most interested in working on. So it was kind of convenient in that sense. Um, the book developed, uh, actually the research paper that I wound up writing, which became the dissertation, which became the book, um, was uh, sort of the outgrowth of my realizing um, and, and looking at the magazines that they were published in uh, originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, because previously when I had read science fiction from the period, it was mostly anthologized, um, just literally the stories. And when I... Um, Started looking at the microfilm of the um, of the original magazines for this research paper. Um, not only did I see the stories, but I got to look at the covers. I and then um, I saw the advertising, and then I noticed all the uh, letters to the editors that were being that were in the back of the magazines, which I didn't know existed because they aren't usually published in anthologies. Uh, yeah, well, in anthologies and book reprints of some of the stories. Okay. Um, and the letters themselves uh, became really, in fact, they became as interesting to me as the as the um, fiction, because as I said, I was I was interested in um, sort of popular conceptions of science and and uh, 
clearly the readers were uh, fairly invested in that as well as the fiction. Yeah. And the book is like very heavily based on um, these pulp magazines and really the material circumstances of them and, and the dynamics of publishing of, of them. So can you say a little bit about maybe about just pulps and their distinctiveness? Sure. Um, the pulps, uh, <laughs> it's actually interesting because um, because pulps don't exist anymore, it is actually hard for people to sort of imagine them. Uh, the the best way I find to just sort of describe their historical analogy, uh, to provide an historical analogy, is that you can think of them as a comp as a combination of what you might think of a comic book mm-hmm. and a paperback book, neither of which existed uh, before World War II, or actually, I guess, comic books technically uh, came about at the at the tail end of the 30s. Um, but they were, in fact, they, the comic books and paperbacks were an outgrowth, uh, basically eventually replaced pulp magazines. Um, and so if you can imagine them, they were, uh, sort of, um, thicker vo- versions of comic books with the cover and the, the sort of, um, with the sort of exciting covers and, and, um, visually sort of, uh, um, visually presented text, um, but inside uh, they basically did not have what you would think of as comics, um, you know, a combination of graphics and text, but just um, you, just uh, the plain text of of what you would find in a book. Uh, they would occasionally have um, illustrations at the very beginning, but other than that, they were all text. Um, and so the, it's, it's kind of what you think of as a book, as I said, literally a, co- a combination of books and uh, comic books or paperbacks and, and comic books um, they were you know they were printed on very um, coarse um, paper called pulp paper which is why they were uh, called the pulps um, they were they were thought of as having a cheap they were thought of as cheap but actually they were not uh, they were not expensive. they were actually fairly expensive. Um, but the price, but then again, also most people did not subscribe to them. They would buy them one issue at a time if they found them, or they found more creative ways to to get them without buying them. Um, they uh, were the primary source of, or one of two primary sources of popular fiction. Um, as I said, most people people who you know paper, uh, sort of mass mass market paperbacks did not exist at the time. So, you know, you can sort of think of the equivalent of people, someone picking up a paperback today, fiction to read, uh, they would have turned to pulps for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pulps themselves actually um, replaced an earlier version of the same kind of format you can think of, of popular fiction, the dime novel, yeah. uh, which uh, people have written about. It's, um, it's, it's interesting that they kind of replaced them because of some peculiarities having to do with uh, marketing and distribution and things like that more than anything else. Uh, at least I would argue that. Yeah. But marketing tends is actually quite important in the story, right? Um, of, your, yeah. of these pulps. Because uh, it's not just that they were, you know, pulps that had science fiction um, stories in them. Pulp, they were pulps sort of for everything. Yes, yes. And um, the, uh, in fact, <laughs> one of the, one of the big arguments I have in the book is that the pulps um, sort of accidentally, but still significantly helped create science fiction itself. The, the idea, 
the, both the term and the the idea, uh, the 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 literary genre itself, um, and the broader sort of cultural phenomenon that I describe in the book. Um, I should say that actually that um, it, to be maybe overly uh, tactical about it, there's sort of two phases in um, the history uh, of pulp magazines in the United States. They the, sort of before World War One, they were um, all sort of general fiction pulps, this same format, but they basically had a combination of of different uh, of they they combined different genres. They were not genre specific. Mm-hmm. Um, after World War One is when they, uh, which is the era that that people tend to call the pulp era, uh, when they did specialize in genres because the, in some senses they're more memorable for that. But they, as I said, they actually existed beforehand. So for instance, um, Tarzan of the Apes, uh, which everybody thinks of as a novel. First appeared in um, one of the pre World War One pulps, All Story. Okay. Um, but for, uh, as far as science fiction, the what happened was after World War One, um, given competition from uh, from other format, there was another magazine format called the Slicks, which um, was the term used at the time to distinguish sort of they they were the pulps, the Slicks, and th- these other. Uh, Magazines called the, that people nicknamed the qualities. So there were actually three different kinds of magazines. Um, the qualities were um, like the Nation. Um, it's probably the best example of that. Uh, Harper's. Um, they, unlike uh, they, they still exist today. Um, unlike other magazines, they didn't have very much. Um, they didn't have a lot of illustrations. They didn't have a lot of advertising. Um, so they were, in, in some ways, they were actually they resembled the pulps. The slicks were the kinds of magazines that most people think of today with sort of very lavish covers, um, a lot of interior illustrations and advertising and things like that. Um, you know, essentially, again, what most people would think of as just a magazine today. Right. Um, and so facing competition sort of as, as the slick sort of grew and took over more and more of the market of for sort of general fiction and nonfiction, the pulps um, began to specialize in um, specific genres, and in fact, and, and what I say in the book that that it's that specialization and marketing of those of the magazines themselves um, that gave rise to the idea, sort of the categories that we sort of think of today as like science fiction, westerns, or detectives. Um, they uh, those. Um, uh, I mean, specifically in the case of science fiction, they had not been used before, and in some ways, the the genre is kind of a product of the business marketing sort of perspective uh, of the pulps, rather than anything specifically inherent about the genre itself. Let me ask you a bit about that, because I was—I uh-huh. mean, this is, you make that sort of interesting claim about that that science fiction is the literary genre that we know arises in these sort of contingent circumstances. Um, but you also use, I mean, you talk about really, I guess, who's one of the main motors behind science fiction um, pulps, um, um, you, sort of Hugo Gernsback. And the, the metaphor you use a couple of times when you're talking about him is, is as a catalyst yes. for science fiction. So I just, I guess, I'm just wondering if you can maybe explain what you mean by him as a catalyst and whether, and how contingent, I guess, the literary genre is and and maybe some ways that it sort of continues to or did then bear the sort of signs of its contingent 
circumstances that it was created in? Well, first of all, um, I, I think one of the things about science fiction and, and actually all of these genres that arose out of the pulps is that uh, in some ways they are not formally genres. They are kind of, uh, I mean, in, in the sense that we might think of, I mean, you know, there's two senses of literary genres. One has to, one is sort of uh, in terms of formal uh, literary genres. So like a novel is a formal literary genre, which is very distinct from, say, an epic or, you know, a poem. So the, the form itself the, the, of, the, of the narrative or the, or the text um, is what distinguishes those, um, I mean, genre in a literary sense. Um, so in, in some senses, you know, all the, a lot of the stories that we think of as, or, you know, that people thought of as science fiction technically might, might have been considered novels or novelettes. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, um, genre in the sense of science fiction and westerns, et cetera, um, is actually not necessarily literary, but is actually sort of a broader cultural category. Because for instance, you can, uh, you can, uh, science fiction is used to describe everything, uh, many things beyond literature or fiction, um, movies, for instance, etc. So, you know, part of the, part of the point of writing the book, uh, and one of the issues that I delve into is what exactly is a kind of a cultural genre? And is it, I mean, is science fiction just simply that, um, that category, which I think it is, I, I would argue it is. And I would actually argue that the that the broader significance of a category that we then that then things get classified under emerges out of the out of the marketing of the pulps and Hugo Gernsbach is responsible for that because um, he's the person who actually not who created who named science fiction and created the first science fiction magazine but interestingly he didn't do both at the same time he actually re- created the first science fiction or what we would call the first science fiction magazine today, um, a magazine called Amazing Stories, um, and at the time when he created it, he marketed the fiction within it um, under the term scientific fiction, um, at which people used for a couple of years, and you can actually still occasionally see references to it. Um, fans uh, of, of the pulp era will refer to uh, STF as opposed to SF, uh, and STF actually t- stands for scientific fiction. It's, it's sort of a, a, a abbreviated uh, reference. Yeah. Um, he then named science fiction later because he lost control of his first magazine after a couple of years, and he just basically created another one. He obviously he called science wonder stories. He couldn't use the term scientific fiction because it was a Amazing, so he coined the term, and that has been and that's the that the term that has come to thick. Now uh, the reason, so that's why he's a catalyst because he obviously uh, was involved in creating um, the, the. I mean, he invented the terms, he invented the magazines. Um, the reason I say that he's a catalyst as opposed to the founder is, um, I think that he set in motion a number of things that he really didn't anticipate. Uh, which I get to later in the book, uh, where there's basically a, a, a sort of large, actually it's hard to tell exactly how large, but there's a significant number of, of readers um, who had been reading s- stories, fiction based on science uh, previous to 
these magazines. And in fact, you know, um, there's there are obviously stories uh, that we would now call science fiction that existed before these magazines. But they, the point is that they were not classified or thought of at specifically as belonging to a specific genre. Okay. Um, and so part of what goes on is that what happens is that he creates the impetus so that the term and the category becomes essentially socially established. Enough people know about it and sort of then think, oh, these things that I've seen or that I've read also fall in that same category. Um, and the the social sort of uh, part, you know, what leads to that social um, establishment uh, or the establishment of that cultural category is that the readers, the, the readers um, respond essentially to the creation of this magazine, and um, they uh, sort of again inadvertently because he needed to fill space in these magazines. He was publishing these letters. Um, uh, he, he basically published letters to the editors, which was not uncommon among pulp uh, magazines to use as filler. But in the case of science fiction, um, allowed readers who previously didn't really know other people who had some interest to discover that there were other people that did have these interests, and they began to communicate with each other, and there were all sorts of developments that came out of that in a way that Gernsbach really anticipated. And in fact, the later chapters of the book uh, sort of discuss um, what the readers did as far as developing what we now think of and, and call sort of fan culture, which is an important aspect of popular culture, um, to, certainly today. Uh, I... I I think science fiction is probably one of the earliest examples, and actually probably is, um, because the the language, the, a lot of the um, sort of things that fans do uh, in other genres are off, are sort of modeled after the historical precedent of science fiction fans. Um, and so there are, there are many other things that sort of arise. Uh, and also another another chapter later in the book um, talks about some of the readers actually pursuing um, their scientific um, ambitions and dreams um, that ne don't necessarily relate to, to fiction itself, but uh, is part of a, a larger uh, popular interest in science uh, at the in the interwar period that I think is. Um, that science fiction basically gives a window into, um, and that that you know it was another re uh, important part of the book that I wanted to sort of delve into. One thing that is uh, one thing that I sort of want to emphasize is that when I say that science fiction as a genre didn't exist, I certainly don't mean to say that you know, for instance, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and stories that people today consider part of science fiction um, could not themselves should not be considered science fiction. My point as a historian is simply to say that that's actually kind of anachronistic. Right. That when they, you know, originally when they were published, they were considered scientific romances. They they obviously were, in some case, you know, known as stories that were associated with science. Um, but they didn't come to be thought of as science fiction until Gernsbach set in motion this, this whole other chain of events. Um, and interestingly, one of the things that um, uh, that you could actually argue is that for some of the readers in the 20s and the 30s, they didn't realize that Verne and Wells had been published before because they were republished in some of the 
interwar pulps and some uh, the, you know some of the readers that wrote in uh thought that they were in fact original publications so in, in they basically discovered what became what we now think of as science fiction classics through the cultural process that Gernsback set in motion. Okay. One of the most fascinating things actually in the book is um, the way that you uncover how science fiction readers and editors really created a quite thoroughgoing community um, based on sort of the material objects of the, of the pulps initially and then other forms of zines later on. Um, so can you just say more about that stuff? Because it's pretty fascinating. Sure. Um, as I said before, you know, when I started uh, this, you know, this research pro- uh, paper in um, graduate school, that was the thing that fascinated me the most was, you know, realizing that the material form of the magazines made a difference in terms of how I would look at it historically. Um, and I knew that science fiction fans existed. Um, it's uh, anybody who, well, I guess actually I sh- shouldn't say that. Um, but uh, if you read enough uh, about science fiction, you'll find out that there is the existence of science fiction fans. I mean, most people are probably most f- uh, familiar with, I guess, uh, Trekkies or yeah. as they to be referred to as Trekkers, um, you know, fans of, sci- of Star Trek. Um, and I, but I didn't know until I started working on the book that, you know, the history of fandom and conventions went back as far as they did into this period. Um, and essentially that, that the fan culture was a byproduct, um, or as I, you know, I mean, was catalyzed by Gernsbach's creation of these magazines. Um, and it has some interesting implications, both in terms of uh, the difference between consumer culture and commercial culture and popular culture, because in some ways, fan culture was all about uh, wanting, a, you know, to preserve uh, a non-commercial version of the kinds of cultural activities that the readers were into, even though they were doing it through the context of something that was mass that was of that was a sort of mass marketed commercial product, yeah. um, and you know so the, it, it's um, what I discovered uh, sort of doing research into this is that there is actually a um, a history of uh, I mean there is very hard to to uh, do historical work on this because the the materials are lost, but there there is actually a, um, a history of essentially what you can think of as amateur press or after publications that in fact even predates the pulps oh really yes i met uh, a collector actually i think he's now um uh, now donated his collection to the university of iowa i'd have to double check but um i i was uh, i did some of my research at the smithsonian and i they actually had an exhibit on um these small uh hand presses that Basically, teenage boys, obviously, I think probably middle class or sort of, you know, kids with a fair amount of access to money. Um, I, I mean, not necessarily rich, but just not uh, not working class uh, purchased or, or and uh, sort of these essentially these small hand um, presses and they uh, printing presses and they would. Uh, create their own little pamphlets and booklets um, in the 1830s, 1840s. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's, uh, there are basically 
are, I mean, if you want to think of it as a print technology um, is not just accessible to commercial publishers, but is, uh, the printing and press, you know, you can, uh, as long as you have something that allows you to type or create some sort of, um, you know, letter form and reproduce it, you know, people themselves can become, you know, can use print technologies for their own purposes. It's just much more difficult to do it by yourself because you have to, you have to have both the desire and the resources to do it. Right. Um, but that is one of the things that happens is, you know, the, it, within fan, within science fiction fans. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the reasons that it, that it emerges within science fiction is that, um, as a newly created genre, um, Gernsbach initially faced a shortage of stories. That was actually one reason he reprinted, um, Vern and Wells and also Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, he, um, I mean, on the business end of it, he, there wasn't necessarily strict adherence to copyright, um, especially international copyright. So, uh, you know, he, some of these, you know, he, some of these were reprints, but he also, uh, you know, was looking for new material and new writers. So he offered, uh, story writing contests in his magazines. He advertised them with cash prizes and, you know, not only would he get winners, uh, you know, and publish their story, but uh, many of the contestants he could sort of draw on, even if they didn't win the contest, he might offer to buy their stories, et cetera. So he encouraged the readers to become more than readers, basically, he encouraged right. them to become writers. And, um, you know, whether or not they were good enough or good or not, uh, many of them, pers- you know, tried. Tried. Yeah. And it's also enforcing like the generic exist the existence of the genre by saying we want this type of story right yes yes yeah. you know it's it's interesting um you know to, i i after working on this i it's interesting for me to realize that the same principle actually applies to other media so um for instance in cable television uh, you know, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but, uh, you know, with the creation of things like the Food Network, uh, right, they, that's a, a channel that essentially is, spe- you know, specializes in one particular, um, you know, uh, in some senses, genre. And, you know, when the Food Network first started, they basically have to create their own, they had to find, um, people that they could be have on television and you know even today you can see they have uh the next iron chef competition they have then the next network star shows uh they basically have created content out of the con out of their need to create a further creators so it's kind of a parallel to what's jo- uh, to uh to what um Gernsbach was doing and it you know it was in the case of science fiction it was quite successful I, I mean you could argue that it was probably true for Food Network as well um, but the uh, so so there was that encouragement and then you know I think what he didn't anticipate was that the fans would start to create clubs uh, they would start to correspond with each other because not all of them lived in the same area um, and they would then also themselves start to publish their own uh, magazines, um, which it took a couple of years, but some of them were able to do those. And so that's the origins of, um, what, uh, 
uh, at the time they called fan mags. Okay. At the very end of the interwar period, um, one of the fans, Roscoe Chauvenet, um, who I actually met when he was when I was doing uh, research. Uh, uh, oh, he's still alive. Uh, he was in the yeah. early 1990s. Okay. Um, one of the things that's uh, uh, sort of bittersweet about doing the book is I actually got to meet some of the people um, that I wrote about uh, as they got um, as they got older, and in, because the book's taken a while to um, uh, to finish, some of them have died along the way, and it's kind of bittersweet in that way because um, m- many of them were extremely generous uh, in l- letting me basically look at private uh, materials that they had um, that weren't collected in archives. I couldn't, I really couldn't have written the book without some of the things that they provided me. Uh, To pursue this archival tangent, um, I mean, the pulps and especially, I guess, the the fan mags are really kind of ephemeral. Where have you found them or were they collected anywhere? um, The collectors are the fans. Um, Although, uh, things have changed a little bit. When I was doing when I was doing the research, when I first began doing the research, um, they were not collected in archives. Um, and so basically, I reached out to fans, fan networks, um, and uh, asked people if I could visit their homes and see their collections. Um, so um, this man by the name of Bill Blackbeard um, basically ran a uh, <clears throat> ran something called the Science Fiction Academy of Comic Art. He collected comics and actually many things besides pulps. Um, and uh, he allowed me, basically, I went to his house um, and or in his garage and spent, um, you know, a week going through uh, the, the materials he had. Um, the magazines themselves were available on microfilm. Um but the fan magazines, yes. So, you know, I, I went and interviewed some of the, um, uh, as I said, I met with some of the, the uh, fans and collectors. Um, one treasure trove that I just sort of discovered, because um, uh, I, I sent letters to a bunch of people through an organization called First Fandom, which uh, they call themselves the Dinosaurs of Science Fiction. Um, they, they are literally an organization of people who were involved in science fiction before 1939. So exactly my time period. I mean, you can imagine um, how thrilled I was to find out there was this organization. So I wrote them and I asked them if they had any of their correspondence. And most of them told me I was crazy because nobody kept letters of that. But I actually found one um, person who, um, I have to look up his name, uh, Mr. Yerke, um, who uh, lived, actually um, became, went, uh, got a graduate degree in library science and co- not only collected everything, but... Uh, Archived it properly? Uh, yes, he had them all filed away. Wow. And and then not only that, he, um, of all places, he, oh, Bruce Yerke, yes. Um, of all things, he looked, he lived up the street from where I did uh, from where I was living in graduate school. Um, so I, uh, you know, when I wrote to him, he said, well, actually, I'm just up the street, you know, and uh, I, uh, so he, I went and visited him and he, he was gracious. He just handed me this entire file and I, I mean, all of his correspondence and I was ecstatic. Um, 
I mean, there are parts of several chapters that couldn't have been uh, of one chapter that couldn't have been written. I think without some of the material that he that he uh, gave me. That's that is very lucky. It's great. Yes, um, um, it is. It, it, things have changed because uh, Blackbeard's collection is. I think was he donated it to. Um, to Ohio State. Okay. Um, the Mike Horvath's collection on amateur press, I think he donated to the University of Iowa. Okay. Uh, one of the biggest collectors, um, uh, and he, some people refer to him as the first fan, was the man by the name of Forrest Ackerman. Um, I had, I was tried, I corresponded with him and I was trying to arrange for him to visit his collection because he had, Arguably the largest collection of science fiction for ephemera everywhere, anywhere. Um, but, uh, he was in the process of negotiating to try to donate them to some, to an archive. And so I wasn't able to look at them, to look at the stuff. Um, there are some collections of science fiction materials, uh, at the University of California Riverside. Um, uh, there's one in Australia that a friend of mine worked on. So there, are, I mean, so, uh, university archives are beginning to collect them now. Um, but it's been it's it's something that's changed uh, as people have begun to sort of look at this not as essentially garbage and trash, but actually as material that might have historical significance. If we want to get over sort of the kinds of uh, class uh, sort of based right. uh, census, yeah, that, that people at the time had. Yeah. So there is so there what you've uncovered this like really dynamic community that's sort of productive that's generating itself that's interested in in science fiction for non-commercial purposes i guess what are people getting out of science fiction at the time and, and what do they hope for it and i guess what are the broader implications for the way that they were imagining science in the interwar period um well there's, there's i'd say there's several different answers to that um because uh you know the at the moment, in, in this period that that I'm writing about, um, people are clearly as interested in the science as they are in the science fiction. Um, the the science fiction fandom and the science fiction sort of portion of it grows out of the uh, again, in some ways, unanticipated response to science fiction as a kind of cultural phenomenon, not just. The, the magazines, which at the time, actually, I, and I should say, um, they were moderately successful um, in the interwar period. They were initially tremendously successful at the in the mid into the late 20s. Okay. Uh, obviously, when the Depression hit, um, it, the circumstances changed so that the, the magazines themselves were not as successful. Was that but was that pulps in general or was that science fiction pulps in particular that suffered? Um, I think it was pulps. It, it's it's actually hard to say because one of the things that I discovered uh, or I, I realized in doing some of the research was that uh, the readers, as I said, the readers didn't necessarily buy pulps, and so and the, the because they were sold, they were not necessarily sold by subscription. It's very difficult to to get. Uh, concrete numbers in terms of the actual readership, the actual numbers of copies that were sold. So the pub publishers in the 30s said that they that it was uh, grown tremendously. 
Um, the in the case of Gernsbach, he actually wound up um, the second magazine, Science Winter Stories, wound up folding in the mid '30s. It got picked up by another um, by another publishing house. Um, so there, you know, pulps in general sort of did continue to they they obviously flourished enough to um, through the '30s that they didn't go out of business. Um, uh, Gernsbach did go out of business, but by the time he did, um, another chain, Street and Smith, who was sort of a longtime publisher of dime novels, um, had created another title called Astounding, which then sort of in the mid, in, in the early and into the late thirties became sort of the flagship sort of uh, science fiction magazine, both in the views of the, uh, writers, um, because they paid pay the best, or cons- and they they paid them, and they paid them consistently, um, and also in terms of the fans. Um, okay. And so, so in fact, um, at, by the end of the period, one of the fans who became an editor, edit became editor of Astounding, uh, John Campbell. Uh, he's generally considered sort of the editor responsible for inaugurating something called the golden age of science fiction. He's the one who first public published Isaac Asimov, um, Robert Heinlein, other people who became uh, not only uh, popular among science fiction readers, but generally popular within sort of American popular culture. Right. Um, and so it's actually, so essentially science fiction is moderately successful, but it's kind of a, a niche genre in the 20s and the 30s. Um, and it, it, uh, it becomes much larger after the war. Uh, but in in the time in which it's that niche genre, the fans who are very active yeah. uh, are you know are able to uh, do all these things that lead to as I said you know this fan fan culture, which then is essentially positioned uh, r- r- extremely well for the expansion of science fiction into sort of popular culture publishing and everything afterwards. Um, so it's one of the Sort of, it, it, in some ways, it's uh, a question. It's an issue of historical timing, basically. Uh, that uh, that um, that science fiction didn't take off as quickly as it did, allowing the fans to essentially, you know, uh, develop a larger place within within you know the um, within the cultural phenomenon. So, what does it mean for them? Um, they uh, it, it, it's um, if I can sort of get a little bit sort of, I mean, some says it's a little bit grandiose, but in a way, I think one of the reasons that, uh, one of the things that I wanted to get at in this book is that uh, the book is kind of a, um, a res- I, I view it as kind of a response to um, works in cultural history that basically, uh, for lack of a better term, substitute popular culture or mass culture um, and okay. basically only look at the work of producers. Okay. Um, and I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind about culture is that it's motivated, you know, that there are uh, important social and psychological, emotional sort of reasons for people to engage in cultural activity. So, you know, why, why do people read? Why do people, those are, Large questions that really can't be answered, but it's important uh, to, I think, when you know, if, if we're going to write about h- cultural history, not to just simply say, well, you know, take the perspective of the producers and say, okay, this is what's going on. 
Um, and so it's clear to me that looking at the fans, that there is an aspect, you know, and, and again, this is in some ways, it's not clear if, um, and I, I wouldn't want to sort of overgeneralize this to, um, uh, you know, historically, but it is clear that, that the fact that this is occurring in the, in the middle of the depression, when there's a lot of question, I mean, not only is there, uh, you know, economic turmoil, but there's a lot of questions essentially about capitalism. Uh, um, about communities, about where, so, you know, sort of the social fabric of, of society is going. Um, and, uh, the, the fact that science fiction readers have something that they can, um, and, and I, I would extend this to popular culture in general, have something that they can, uh, participate in, um, and, you know, essentially uh, bring meaning into the lives. I think that's not to be underestimated. And I think that that uh, there's an anti-commercial aspect that arises within fans at the time that's a product of the, of the Depression era that uh, today is sort of doesn't necessarily, you know, the, those, that sense that anti-commercial sentiment isn't as prevalent among fans in some, you know, the fans who just simply distinguish themselves as amateurs versus professionals. Uh, but it, it has clearly has larger, um, uh, sort of implications about class culture and about class sort of conception that, that I couldn't really delve into in the book. But, you know, what is it? I mean, if we think of work as something that we, that we do productively, what does it say about, uh, you know, the kind of society that we live in that people will work, um, in sense, in the sense of having a job, but in order to support their real sort of interest in something that is outside of work and that they actually spend all huge amount of money and effort mm-hmm. in and still want to preserve a its kind of amateur status. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the really interesting things about fan culture that I think, uh, you know, that I couldn't really address in the book that really needs to be teased out. You know, um, as far one other thing about the period I think is less prevalent um, was that uh, science fiction really was uh, a an avenue for people who are interested in science to try to express themselves, and you know that's that's an important part of the book uh, because um, you know w- one of the contexts that I wanted to bring out was that there were that not as many people finishing high or attending much finishing high school much less attending college. And so, you know, this is really an era where clearly science is in the air in the same way in which, for instance, the internet, uh, you know, electronic, um, sort of the potential for electronic and digital um, sort of production is in the air today. And there's a lot of uncertainty about where it's going to go, but people are, are obviously familiar that things are changing. Um, that there's a kind of parallel to that, in, you know, as far as science, um, which, by the way, in the interwar period, refers to both science and technology. Right. Um, because technology is a term that's not actually used, and so the two are used synonymously. Um, but you know, if you if you imagine in the 1920s, uh, you know, it's uh, the airplane, the radio, sorts of things have just literally only existed for 20 years. Right. Um, and so it seems a little bit far-fetched now 
looking back to say, well, you know, uh, people are going to build rockets and go to the moon. Um, I think the concept of, of realizing that, uh, you know, 20 years before, people had never been to fly. Right. Literally, you went from the Wright Brothers flyer, you know, a, a sort of very flimsy plane to uh, DC-3s, um, commercial aircraft, commercial transport, uh, much less, uh, you know, people were, uh, this is before Hindenburg, there were Zeppelins, there were all sorts of things that were happening. And uh, people, even if they weren't educated or involved, sort of formally involved in it, uh, which the majority of people were not, um, this was something that there, that many people were engaged in and wanted to know about. Um, so, for instance, you know, there was a screening of a documentary film of uh, about Einstein's theory of relativity at the American Museum of Natural History in New York that actually caused a riot. Right. I can imagine right? Uh, that, uh, that there were a riot would break out over a what happened. So, uh, science fiction, I think, uh, in the era, uh, regardless of what you might think of the quality of fiction, etc., this was a way that that allowed um, essentially ordinary Americans, um, and, and you know, it, some of whom later actually, because they were they read science fiction, they were interested in science technology, then in you know produced and um, things that would be significant. That are, um, but it was a way that people became were allowed were allowed to become involved. Some of them, um, for some of them, it was uh, simply about demonstrating their their knowledge of science. But uh, again, in the you know in era not as many people were as educated. Um, the idea that you would essentially be self educated, that you would have knowledge that was not Essentially, um, demonstrated by your by your educational attainment, your credentials, but literally by what you were through, show people. That was, that was an important aspect of the letters that people were writing. Some some of the uh, fans were writing because they uh, wanted to share their enthusiasm and then demonstrate their ability in science. I mean, we've said, we've talked a lot about the community that developed around science fiction and about pulp, and around pulps, but the, but your book also has a lot to say about, I guess, the content of the pulps and the, and the kinds of stories and the themes that they were addressing. Um, and I, and, you know, we should talk about that too. So I guess I want to, there's, I want to ask about, I guess, gender and robots and domesticity, because that's one of the themes that you, you pull apart in, in one of the chapters. Um, and you, you kind of include this great quote by Isaac Asimov, um, writing to a standing in 1938, where, you know, he doesn't want, it doesn't seem like he wants gender or domesticity to have its place in, 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 uh, science fiction stories. He writes, um, when we want science fiction, we don't want swooning dames, and that goes double. Come on, men, make yourself heard in favor of less love mixed in with our science. So what's going on here? Well, one of the things that, um, I, well, there's a lot going on in there, there. That's at least the short answer. Um, the, you know, the, as much as the book is about, uh, I mean, a lot of the book is 
the structure of the book is about so essentially providing context, uh, essentially, an, if if you, uh, for lack of a better term, an ethnographic perspective on these communities. You know, the story, what the stories, what they were reading, um, the sto- what the stories conveyed, and uh, actually, I should say, step back and say, not just the stories, but the conversations that that the readers themselves were having in terms of the letters. Um, I, I that. You know, the middle part of the book is is kind of is um, my it was the result of my thinking about how do we talk about literature historically and read it sort of cultural uh, in cultural context because you know if we just simply read the stories we might get a different impression than you know if we actually looked at some of the letters that readers were writing. Uh, uh, that readers were writing as a result of reading the stories. So, sorry, this, it's a little bit confusing. Um, and so, uh, the, um, so in examining the stories, uh, the, the middle part of the, the book is, is called reading. Um, but it's, it's not just, as I said, it's not really just about reading the stories, but reading the larger, uh, historical themes that, that come out of this. And so, um, one of the things that I began to realize is that some of the motifs that we associate with with science fiction specifically, like robots, like uh, aliens, another chapter, of the, you know, another chapter in that section, um, are not ahistorical. That they are, in fact, the specific result of historical contexts that are, in some senses, lost, and that I try to recon, uh, recreate. In this section of the book, and so the uh, the chapter about gender and uh, domestic tranquility is basically um, it, it's it's a very complicated chapter, but it basically was began as a way of figuring out why is it first of all why is it that um, I, well to to explain the fact that so many of the readers were bringing up gender in the context of science fiction. What's the larger, you know, what what are the larger implications of that? Uh, one of the side effects of that, I argue, is that it turns robots into machines. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting twist on the science fiction, the notion of the science fiction robot. Uh, the original, I mean, the the, uh, the term robot comes originally from a Carol Coppock uh, play called R.U.R. short for Rossum's Universal Robots. And uh, in the in the play, robots are manu- they're created, they're not born, but they are actually biological. Um, and and it's and not only that, but they are they are male and female robots, and which is an important part of the play. I don't want to sort of go too much into it. Um, so, um, you know, somewhere along the way, within science fiction, however, robots essentially become machines. And so, in thinking about how this uh, how this sort of came about, I realized that it actually the love letters and the sort of Arguments about gender um, actually help explain that, um, because essentially, uh, by by removing gender from robots um, and turning them to machines, it allows the uh, science fiction and sort of the readers to essentially remove gender from a concern and replace it. With machines, first of all, associated with obviously with the technological, uh, the machine era of the time. Um, 
but also for them to uh and and essentially what i realized was that the the gender was at play because the men who were actually saying that we need to get rid of of um of love in science fiction were really saying that that they were that they wanted to reserve it for their own sense of masculine worth so that they could demonstrate their scientific ability, uh, which is, is what I was kind of talking about before, which the women then sort of responded by saying, well, women also have scientific ability too. So there, you know, love essentially represented a lot more than, uh, you know, of what was going on than, uh, than I think in some ways the, the teenage, I should say, you know, Isaac Asimov when he was writing was a teenager. So we can't necessarily, sort of uh, hold him accountable for, yeah, for the sentiments. But, um, you know, I mean, obviously those things are going on. And I think that, I mean, it, it has larger implications for science fiction generally uh, because one of the things that, uh, that I wanted to sort of point out from a historical perspective, and I don't necessarily mean this in a critical perspective, uh, is that, that there's a certain irony to the fact that Gernsbach is encouraging uh, this huge social committee, community to embrace science fiction and to develop science active. In other words, he's trying to encourage sort of agency among the readers um, and to see to give them a place to encourage them to see themselves as having a place within science. Um, but that science, that this notion of science that is emerging at the same time. Um, out of other circumstances beyond necessarily science fiction, was encouraging people to think of science as something that was objective, that even though it was done by people, is sort of outside the uh, the authority of science ex essentially ex ex exists outside of society. So that mo that a lot of the celebration of science that goes on in science fiction, and particularly in the science fiction of the era, um, becomes naturalized. So this odd way in which uh, the agency gets uh, of you know readers gets directed into the fiction and not necessarily into themselves, and that that's a uh, it, and essentially the if you sort of look at the plots of some of the of the stories, you know the the robots are essentially represent the kind of labor threat and. And they become uh, essentially menaces, so that you know, so that that masculine heroes that um, Asimov didn't seem to have an objection to, um, you know, who they were, the, they, they was actually their masculine uh, virtue that was the flip side of the romantic love that the women that the female characters uh, in fiction had. Um, and by the way, neither of them, you know, I mean they. Neither male nor female characters were particularly developed. This yeah. was um, th that wasn't essentially the point of the stories. Um, which is again something that the that the male readers didn't necessarily pick up on. Uh, but the the the, the, the as I said, so the robots represent this threat, and in a way, the heroes, you know, defeating the robots allowed themselves to prove their own worth. You know, um, which resonated with a lot of the readers, uh, wanting to, a sense of wanting to participate and be a part and have some sort of control over, you know, the, the fact that science was changing society. Mm -hmm. Right. But in a way, that's, you know, that kind of process is psychological. Mm -hmm. 
and the net result of sort of what happens in the sort of within science fiction is the science triumphs the in terms of producing progress the uh, human characters triumph in terms of their social virtues but in a way that the two become sort of divorced so that right. so science becomes natural and not social right. it's, it's kind of interesting and you know you could the the last chapter I have in that section sort of follows up on, follows up on that point by looking at um, at time travel yeah and, and basically the fact that you know uh, in order that time travel in this particular period doesn't always goes forward before it backward so it doesn't trouble the past right you know which is interesting because it allows people to continue to imagine the idea of progress but not to imagine the implications of what happens if you go into the past if you change the past then you change the present and you can essentially unsettle it um, in a way that actually that science fiction after the war period actually you know I mean that's in some senses the dominant motif uh and continues to be today. Uh, people want to look at alternative timelines. Right. Uh, you know that people essentially kind of want that uncertainty um, it, it, because because what that allows you to think about is actually you know human and historical agency. Right. Ironically, the time travel did not. You know, it allowed you to imagine, but it didn't allow you to achieve a. Um, and so it's, it's, it is an interesting dynamic within that, you know, you know, and it's important for me, it's also, it, it's important to point that out, but then also to point out that, you know, that, that, that dichotomy doesn't necessarily then play out in terms of the readers, uh, because whether or not they recognize that there is that dynamic within science fiction, mm-hmm. that, you know, do all the things that I was talking about in, uh, as far as fan activities and you know, um, after the book they actually go on and build rockets um, right. and they, um, you know discover in a different way uh, in, in, a, in a real historical context that um, history you know is not reverse that you do you know uh, the decisions that you make have consequences um, and uh, they realize that the actual process of working on science, doing science, um, this is in a social context and you know, existing thinking about prestige, uh, media presentation, authority, um, and, you know, things as well as actual, as, actual, as well as actual concrete experimental results. Um, and I sort of into that uh, in the last chapter uh, because, you know, basically, they discover that in order to become taken more seriously in their scientific work, they have to, in, in some senses, disavow. And that, I mean, without going too overboard on that, I think that that is an important separation that uh, that I, I hope would be recognized without being controversial. Yeah. Science is, in fact, the disavowal of of that you know of even very important. Um, and it's and, and I think in some senses that 
kind of puts a artificial blinder in some into the, of some, um, that we traditionally think of the history of sciences, the history of scientists, um, scientific work with. I mean, this is not the case across the board, but you know, um, it's not very. Uh, I mean, I just don't necessarily talk about the more um, respectable things that they do sometimes in some regards. And, uh, you know, particularly if you look at the history of NASA um, aerospace. You know, and the sort of the sum total of everything that's going on and why people are doing things. I think there's a more interesting full picture that that still doesn't come out. You know, people tend to look at professional aspects of things. Um, you know, the Werner von Braun is well known as a rocket scientist, um, and there are, but I mean, things that. not a lot of people know unless they happen to be historians of aerospace is that some of his most important papers, um, you know, like one, actually one important uh, paper that he wrote that's actually an appendix to a novel of a uh, trip to Mars. Okay. It's actually with Robert Goddard who uh, published, uh, you know, with his um, treatises, uh, Actually, one of his most famous papers, it most popular for the for a small part of what he um, what he uh, sort of wrote about, where he basically imagined, you know, people, like uh, had a thought experiment where he launched a rocket at the moon, and if it contained enough explosive power, if it hit the moon, you'd be able to see it on the Earth. Mm-hmm. It's his rockets, but it's the one thing that he picked up. He read War of the Worlds every year, I think, as as an annual ritual for his. You know, I think um, if we look at the history of science today, um, I think it would be, I mean, with integrating sort of the scientific work that scientists do, I think it's really important that we have a fuller picture of what is involved. Um, You know, I mean, this is much difficult much more difficult and broad uh, issue, but I think what what the you know in science what do we how do we think historically about popular science even if the science is in some senses incorrect yeah. or but still and is not professionals but it still has an uh, um, and I'm sort of hope that the book will open up sort of discussions about it, about at larger. Okay. Um, there's so much in there, and there's like so much more to think about, I think, John. What are you uh, working on now? I am working, well, I'm doing some follow-up on on uh, on the book. Um, the see, Some of the stuff I discuss in the epilogue about realizing that essentially um, what I be, when I began writing the book, I described as communities that um, that they're really social networks. You know, use the sort of a, a fashionable term, but that is actually the most appropriate term. <laughs> um, that in some ways the uh, the stuff that they the the stuff that I write about in the book is has 
is a historical precedent for some of the concerns that we have today about electronic media, about uh, social networks, using, again, sort of information technology and digital media. Um, and so I think, so I'm, I'm working on a couple small things that basically draw out the connections. Paris to basically say, you know, this is an example using print technology of the same sort of social uh, issues. The fact, I mean, basically to say that social networks existed before technology, digital technology, it just worked, you know, at speed in different ways possibly. But the larger issue of the sociability is not inherent to digital technology, but to just technology and its place within society. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I have a, uh, I'm trying to put together an online, uh, the database that I used, uh, that I put together for the book, I'm trying to put that online, including the letters to the editor. Um, and I'd like to, uh, I've set it up as a wiki and I'd like to, um, at some point, um, get it advanced enough so that I can tell people, you know, look, if you want to be a part of this, it would be great if people want to, um, help me track down some of the, um, biographical information about some of the readers. Mm-hmm. I, I did that. Um, I did that for a, a number of the fans that I um, and writers and readers that I looked at. But there, there are over. I looked at. I read over four thousand letters to the editors. Wow. Uh, but you know, a lot of them. A lot of people signed their names and provided their addresses. And so, right. Um, if I am trying to sort of put that all into a database so that you can then sort of map and see, you know, where people were writing from, you know, how many people came from different states, how many people came from graphically, and also to try, uh, to map out, literally map out the kind of social networks that they become, their, their evidence of. Um, and I want to sort of look at that uh, so I, I'm going to sort of write up, I think I'd like to write some follow-up pieces to to sort of highlight um, that aspect of the community in a way. You know, I wasn't able to do uh, working on the book, um, but is now available using sort of databases and stuff like that that are available. So I'm following up on some things in the in you know from the research that I didn't do in the book. I'm also started um, a second project that I. Uh, have actually kept on the shelf for a very long time. Uh, it's an outgrowth of the one, in some ways it's an outgrowth of the one chapter in the book about aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this, but the connection between aliens and Asians. Right. Um, and issues of race. Right. Uh, which, uh, I think is actually, you know, is very, very rich. Um, there's a, there's a way in which race, you know, which, is essentially an expression of fundamental human social difference gets mapped onto alien as you know aliens as a fundamental natural difference um, and you know those issues and the con- sort of the relationship between the two continue to be sort of uh, to express you know I from I mean there's a recent I, I if you if you've uh, read about this, but there was a recent sort of brouhaha about the fact that um, the film version of The Hunger Games... Right, one of the characters was black or something, right? Um, several of the readers of the original novel didn't notice that they 
that they were described having. The book, you know, but then they reacted to the fact that suddenly confronted the character black, and um, you know that they sort of it, and you know, and you you wonder well, in science fiction where you're imagining a future. Now it worked the same way it does. So, but we're still obviously bringing it into our imagining. You know, right. it, it's in our imagination. So I'm got another project called that I'm tentatively calling Bard Zones, which is uh, basically a, a, a work in Asian American history, okay. uh, history of Americans, um, and uh, sort of looking at the legislative history of um, uh, sort of that's buried within various acts of Congress and cases, but really has sort of larger, um, and, and specifically is about Asians um, and Asian Americans. Uh, it, the, it's called Bard Zones because after um, this thing called the Asiatic Bard Zone that was created by Congress um, in the 1917 immigration bill, uh, which I uh, encountered in the historical literature aimed at anti-immigration, uh, sort of at li- at one of the first attempts to limit immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, which it did. Um, but a, a small portion of it actually, for the first time, defined a geographic area, Asia, basically uh, excluded people uh, from that area from, uh, from entering the United States. And, you know, there's because it was... Uh, enacted by Congress, then the Supreme Court has to decide what that, the implications are for that. Right. Uh, so this got me thinking about the relationship of race and sort of nationality to concepts of geography. Because um, literally, this, I mean, you know, and, and literally, like, what what does Asia mean? And the project sort of looks at the history of geography, specifically the idea of continents, Okay. Is an artificial contract. Right. If you wanted to think of it geographically, there's Eurasia. Right. <laughs> um, even even I, some people argue that the idea of, of continents is kind of uh, does it is meaningful is geographic, but in some ways it's not because it's artificial. Right. It's uh, it doesn't necessarily reflect, for instance, physical geography, which like that too. It's about a racial geography. Essentially, it's about it, it's, it's a geographic con- it's a geographic concept that then becomes used as something that's not right. But some my thinking in in a, in a study about what's what is social, what is natural, and what is the distinction between the two of them. That's what I'm working on now. Okay. Sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading it. Thanks very much, John. Thanks. You too. You're welcome. That was my conversation with John Chang about his new book, Astounding Wonder. There's a lot in the book that we didn't get to talk about, um, and I think the book will reward careful reading. In particular, his arguments about race and aliens, about truth and facticity, um, and about time travel and progress will help us understand the cultural dynamics of interwar science. Um, It's a great book. You should give it a read. 
the New Book Network Science, Technology, and Society page. I'm Patrick Slaney.